You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. And by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And Polar Tech, bringing you the science of fabric. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. The new AAJ has been going into the mail to members of the American Alpine Club for a couple of weeks now. If you haven't received it yet, it should be there any day. And if you're not an AAC member, you can easily order a copy online. We'd love to hear from you with comments and suggestions. You can reach the editors at AAJ at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Our guest for this episode of The Cutting Edge is Colin Haley. This is the second time Colin has appeared on the show to talk about soloing a classic hard route on a great mountain. Back on episode 10, it was his speed solo of the Cassine Ridge on Denali. This time it's the Super Canaletta, the mile-high route that splits the west face of Shelton, a.k.a. Fitzroy, in southern Patagonia. In September, at the end of the Austral winter, Colin made the first winter solo of the route in about 21 hours up and down. As you'll hear, climbing in Patagonian wintertime is nothing like the busy summer season. Colin had to break trail through deep snow to reach the climb, a 10-mile, 5,500-vertical-foot approach that he ended up doing multiple times, carrying heavy loads. On the route, he experienced temperatures down to minus 20 Celsius. That's minus 4 Fahrenheit. And instead of squeaky neve in the couloir, he had to front point iron-hard gray ice for thousands of feet. The numbers get at the physical side of climbing a route like this, but what makes this interview, I think, is the discussion of the psychological aspects of climbing alone in winter on a mountain like Fitzroy, the sometimes mysterious sources of motivation, and the shifting rationales behind continuing or bailing. Colin spoke with AAJ assistant editor Michael Levy from his home in Chamonix. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Michael Levy here. With me today, I have Colin Haley, who is fresh off a smash-and-grab expedition to Patagonia. While it was summer up here in the northern hemisphere, Colin traveled down south for the tail end of the Austral winter. He completed the first winter solo of the Super Canaletta, the ultra-classic route on Fitzroy. A winter solo of the route, with its ice climbing and its mix and rock climbing, is something he had been thinking about trying for years. And we're very excited to hear more about it. So without further delay, Colin, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you have a lot of history climbing in Patagonia. A few highlights. You've, you and Rolando Garibaldi did the first traverse of the Torre Massif. You then did a day with 
Alex Honnold, before which you had done it in reverse with Marc-Andre Leclerc. You've done many, all of the towers, something like that, individually, right? And you've sold a lot of them. But most of this was in in summer. Um, yeah, that's correct. Climbing there in winter, it seems like a, a whole different ball game. I imagine. Can can you kind of set the scene for us a little bit, like what what winter in Patagonia is like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll assume that a lot of listeners have heard a little bit about what Chaltan is like in summer or Patagonia in general, and so the comparisons in winter. I mean, the two most obvious things that are probably not a surprise to anyone are that it's a lot colder and there's a lot less daylight. Or I guess the third obvious thing is there's a lot more snow on the ground as well. And, you know, that is kind of typical for doing winter ascents in any mountain ranges. Well, not any, I guess ones that are far from the equator. You know, the latitude in El Chaltan is 49 degrees south. So it's basically like the U.S.-Canada border, at least on the West Coast. And that means you have a pretty big difference between summer and winter. You know, places like Alaska have a really extreme difference between summer and winter. And places like Nepal have a pretty mild difference between summer and winter. But yeah, so in Chaltan, at the height of, like on the summer solstice, you have basically 18 hours of daylight there and six hours of darkness. And the winter solstice is the opposite. I intentionally timed my trip for the latter part of winter when you have a lot more daylight, but you still have more darkness than daylight, um, even in late winter. So yeah, there's those kind of climatic elements that are different in a kind of obvious way because it's wintertime. And in addition to that, I would say the other really big difference is there's just drastically fewer people in the mountains there. Right. Over the last couple decades, El Chalten, the town, has become more and more of a legitimate town. And there are now quite a few people who live there year round, which didn't used to be the case at all. And so El Chalten, the town itself, now feels kind of normal, even in the winter season, just quieter. But the mountains get drastically quieter. And there are more people doing stuff in winter there now than it used to be. There are a few places where it's actually pretty popular for people to go ski touring. And that's actually places north of the Chalten Massif. People drive like an hour north from Chalten to go to kind of easy access ski touring areas. But the range itself, you know, the Fitzroy Peaks, the Torres, see very little activity during the winter. So I was down there for a month and I made five different trips into the mountains and a couple times on the first couple kilometers of flat trail down in the valley I crossed another person hiking but all the time that I spent kind of up out of the valleys in the higher mountain area I never crossed a single person in that trip so yeah it it gives it a very different feeling. And yeah, the the other big thing is there's a lot of snow on the ground. On the peaks themselves, there isn't necessarily more snow than in summer. And in fact, I think a common misconception that people have is that there would be, because if you live in the Cascades or in Colorado or in the Appalachians, you're used to seeing mountains that in summer 
are basically bone dry and in winter are covered in snow. But most mountain ranges in the world that are higher and colder, often the mountains themselves have more snow on them in spring, summer, and fall, and less snow on them in winter, because in winter it's too cold for the snow to stick to the mountains very much. And it just gets blown off. Like you see that here in Chamonix, um, very typically in the middle of winter, the north faces are just like bare rock and ice. Obviously, cracks are filled with powder snow and stuff like that. Sure. But there's not like that sticky neve just like blanketing stuff. Right. You're just dealing with less daylight, much colder temperatures, that kind of thing in winter. Yeah, that's that's not to imply that it's easier because it's definitely not <laughs> because everything yeah. is still snowy. You know, there's like powder snow on the holds, powder snow in the cracks and everything like that. It's just that you don't get the big features covered with like a nice stable blanket of firm snow like you would in summer. So in every aspect, it's more difficult. It's just that unlike what people are used to in the lower 48, the actual mountain above the glacier doesn't necessarily look snowier in winter than it does in summer. So you originally, it sounds like from what, from reading your social media posts and your blog post about this climb, it wasn't your intention at the beginning of summer up here in the Northern hemisphere to, to go down to Patagonia this season. How did this trip come about? Yeah, I, um, my summer this year, I ended up changing plans a number of times. <laughs> and I ended up hanging out in Chamonix in the early part of the summer, a lot longer than I anticipated. And then finally, I said, okay, I'm going to go and spend my summer in the Canadian Rockies. And I was actually quite psyched about that. And I flew back to Seattle, which is where I'm originally from, spent some time getting reorganized there, actually a lot more time than I intended, because the whole trip was based around borrowing my dad's old van, which turned out to not be working. And uh, <laughs> so my whole tr trip to the Canadian Rockies already got delayed like three weeks at the beginning. And then the van kept breaking down while I was up there. And uh, I also was inspired to go to the Rockies this summer because they had had a really big snowpack in the late winter and spring. And I generally like mountains when they're less melted out, and especially the Rockies, since the rock quality isn't particularly good but it turned out to be another hot summer not crazy like the summer before but by mid-july you wouldn't have known that there had been a big snowpack at all and the other thing is that for better or worse i guess from my perspective mostly for worse <laughs> uh, banff yoho and jasper national parks have kind of turned into the northern yosemite they've just blown up in terms of the number of users going there for sightseeing and easy hiking and I think it's been technically the case for a long time that you can only sleep in designated, you know, pay reservation campsites there. But historically, all the climbers in the Canadian Rockies would always just sleep at trailheads in their cars and whatnot, and no one cared. But I guess because the parks are getting so overrun now, that's starting to be enforced a lot. And so hmm. I, it basically ended up being like a trip like most people have heard of in Yosemite where people are like trying to like not get busted for sleeping in their vehicles. And that was kind of a bummer. And, um, and then finally I did get busted for sleeping in my dad's old van at a trailhead one night. And then that's when I finally said, screw it. This trip isn't turning out how I wanted it to started driving back to Seattle. And at the, 
yeah, at the last minute, I um, decided to go to Patagonia and I bought a ticket for only five days in the future from that moment. So it was a very last minute decision. And it sounds like you were texting a little bit with Rolo, with Rolando Garibaldi before going, right? Just to kind of feel out his thoughts on the weather and your plans and that kind of thing, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, Rolo is a longtime friend and climbing partner of mine. And he's also one of the two most important mentors I've had in climbing. Um, When I first started teaming up with him, I learned a tremendous amount from climbing with him. And, you know, now I'm a much more active climber than Rolo is, but he still provides me, I would say, with a lot of really helpful advice at times. And I contacted him mostly just to get to his take on the weather models because he is, I would say, more of an expert than anyone else at reading the weather models in that part of the world and how to interpret that data in terms of like what the actual climbing conditions might turn out to be. And so he did give me his take on the weather, but I would say that much more importantly, he really encouraged me to go and take the trip because I liked the idea, but there were several reasons not to go. One being that at that moment when I was even thinking about going, there was already only one month of calendar winter left in the Southern Hemisphere. And the long range forecasts showed September to have above average precipitation, which turned out to be true. And, you know, it's just kind of a long ways to go on a gamble, especially in winter solo, because you don't have as much flexibility. It's not like if the Super Candeletta didn't work out, I had tons of other options of things that I could try that were appealing, that were feasible. So there was a lot of a gamble to it. And, um, But Rollo, yeah, he uh, really encouraged me to go for it, which I really appreciate. And I think partly he was excited for me to go give it a try because he had done a solo winter trip to Chalten in 2001. And on that trip, the Super Canaletta, I think, was his, like, the objective most on his mind. And he, like, went one time up to the base of the route and then decided not to try. It was cool to get encouraged to go try it by... I think, uh, one of the very few people who had seriously considered trying to solo it in winter. Cool. Although, sorry, on that subject, I know I'm being super long-winded. <laughs> I want to mention quickly, because I didn't even think to write it in my blog when I was super tired, Austrian climber Marcus Pucher made a couple strong winter solo attempts on the Super Canaletta maybe four or five years ago, something like that. And on one of his attempts, he got decently high in bad conditions. So before I forget on that subject of previous suitors, I wanted to mention that. So you have a long history with the Super Canaletta, but a lot of people probably might not know exactly what the Super Canaletta is. They might just think it's a, you know, some some big cool war and it's clearly much more involved than that. Can you kind of give a high level overview of what the route entails? Sure. So the route is on the west side of Chalten, also known as Fitzroy. I think out of habit, I've been saying Fitzroy, the true name, the native name is Chalten. But yeah, that side of Fitzroy is bigger than the east face, which people normally see only because the glacier at the base is lower. So from the Bergschrund to the summit, I think is like 1,600 meters of elevation gain, a little more than 5,000 vertical feet. And if you look at the west face of Fitzroy, 
it's just one humongous, totally straight gash that goes from the base, basically up to the summit slopes. So the name Super Canaletta, which just means super couloir, is very fitting. And basically, roughly the first 1,000 meters of elevation gain after you cross the Bergschrund are in the easier part of the climb, which for the first couple hundred meters of vertical is just kind of like 50 degree snow and neve. And then it starts narrowing down and you get short steps of like grade three ice and steeper bulges. And then the last maybe 400 meters of the couloir portion are, mm, I don't know, probably averaging around 70 degrees or something like that. So basically grade three ice climbing. And in summer, that section is usually actually still very easy because it's like filled in fat with tons of easy neve and you can kind of just dagger mm-hmm. up it. In winter, because the snow doesn't stick and it gets blown off, that whole section was just really hard old gray ice, which makes it much more time consuming and tiring. So anyways, that brings you to like a thousand meters above the Bergschrund. And that's where the more technical climbing starts. So then in terms of vertical, there's probably, I don't know, something like 500 vertical meters of mixed climbing from that point up to the summit slopes. And it follows the couloir itself for a ways. And then the route dogs out of the couloir and it eventually hits the upper Southwest Ridge. And then you're kind of weaving over and around a bunch of uh, gendarmes on the ridge. And that's the most technically sustained part of the climb. And then finally, you hit the kind of summit slopes of Fitzroy, and you've got something like 200 vertical meters going up um, snow and ice slopes and mixed slopes up to about 60 degrees and like kind of ice and mixed, but more like fourth class terrain. Got it. So you first climbed the Super Canaletta in 2007, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's correct, with um, Maxime Turgeon. Okay, and then you soloed it, and you were the second person to solo it in 2009. And on a blog post about that, you wrote, it still remains one of the most intense days of my life. So soloing the Super Canaletta, even in summer, is pretty, pretty, pretty tall order, it sounds like. Yeah. I would definitely say that. Um, soloing Fitzroy by any route is a serious endeavor. And mm-hmm. soloing the Super Canaletta, I'd say, is a more serious endeavor than the Franco or the California route. But the time that I soloed it in summer in 2009 was particularly an intense day because I did it in a very marginal weather window that really, I probably should not have done it in. It was a day when no one else was on Fitzroy. There was one party of Scottish climbers climbing the Willens route on Poinsonnat that day. And they said it was like Scottish conditions. And um, so I really shouldn't have even been up there at that time. And yeah, I think it's because I was 23 or 24 at the time and (laughs) maybe making a decision that was a little bit um, pushing too hard. Got it, got it. And you then climbed it again in 2016 with Andy Wyatt, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And then you went down in 2019 intending to make a winter solo of it, right? What happened on that trip? Um, on that trip, yeah, I flew down there. I, on the travel down to El Chalten, caught some cold and spent, I don't know, the first seven or 10 days of the trip totally sick, which sucked. <laughs> um, and then when I was finally over that, I uh, started hauling some gear into the mountains. And the weather was beautiful. It was like probably the biggest weather window I've ever seen in Chalten. But I was still getting over my cold. And when I finally thought I would go make an attempt, I like hiked in and picked up a cache of gear that I had left halfway through the approach and hauled it all to the base of the route. But when I got to the base of the route, it was very dry. In hindsight, I think it might not have actually been quite as dry as I thought because I realized this year that some parts of the lower couloir look like bare rock when there's actually a little bit of ice. It's just hidden from view. But mm -hmm. in any case, the conditions were very dry. And I feel pretty confident that there were sections of the lower couloir which were just bare rock. And, you know, for most hard pitches, bare rock is the easiest conditions to have. But on a section of long 70 degree couloir, where the underlying rock is just basalt dike, having just, you know, thick ice is way easier and faster. And so basically, it looked like what was normally the relatively easy part of the route was going to already be pretty challenging and time consuming which would have meant having to bivy and having to bivy would mean having a really heavy pack on the first day, which would then make that climbing actually too difficult to free solo. So the conditions did not look very good. But in addition, I just, you know, I looked up at it and I was like, I don't think I have this in me right now. Yeah, this ain't the time. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think I have like, uh, a really good logical explanation as to why at that moment I didn't really feel up for it and why this year I did. Obviously, there was the conditions, but, you know, I think that's only part of it. And if you're really motivated, maybe you find a way to make it happen despite the dry conditions. And the way that I felt in 2019, I'm guessing that I probably would not have done it on that trip if I had the same conditions that I did have this year. So yeah, the psychology plays a big part. I've always said that motivation is by far the most important, you know, attribute that an alpinist can have. The thing is soloing routes that are really easy for you, like, you know, soloing after six in Yosemite, which is like a popular thing that lots of people do in the evening, that is very lighthearted. But soloing routes that are actually, you know, make you anxious and it's a stressful experience, not in a negative way, but intense. It's just you kind of have to be in the right moment, in my opinion, or at least in my experience. Yeah, you don't want to start up that in the wrong headspace if you can help it. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, that wouldn't necessarily make it more dangerous or anything, but you know, my friend Kelly Cordes, he once said that the essence of succeeding on an alpine climb is that you have to want to go up more than you want to go down. 
And I think that's actually a very insightful way of phrasing it, even if it sounds kind of silly and simple, because so often in alpine climbing, our assessments of the conditions and various risks and whatnot is tainted by our actual psychology at that moment, even if we think we're trying to be objective about evaluating those things. And when you really want it, you can often find a way when other people are saying, oh, no, the weather's not good enough, the conditions aren't good enough. And conversely, when you don't have that fire inside you, it's easy to say, no, it's not good enough right now, and I don't think the forecast is good enough, and blah, blah, blah. After a break, Colin and Michael will dive into the details on the Shelton Ascent. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. Harness? Check. Chalk bag? Check. Grid fleece? Check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear lists to make sure they packed PolarTech. We love PolarTech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick-drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, PolarTech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. You probably have one in your closet right now. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, PolarTech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. PolarTech is the science of fabric. So you that brings us up to 2022 finally. Yeah, um, sorry. More or less. <laughs> no, you're good. So you got there end of August, right? Or beginning of September? I think I got to Chalten the night of August 29. Okay. And did you hike in right away? I mean, this is like this. Normally, I would imagine this everything for an expedition expedition like this, you would have had a little more time to plan and prep and everything. but you're just kind of doing it all really fast. Here. Yeah, it was quite a whirlwind, especially because I had, you know, decided to go there only five days before. So the, the five days previous, I was just super busy getting organized, getting packed, because also most of my best winter climbing gear was back in France because I hadn't planned to go to winter. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, right. So that was really busy. I showed up in Chalten and I knew that I had less than a month of calendar winter. and. As many people know, the weather in Patagonia is bad a lot more often than it's good. And so I knew that I would not have a lot of opportunities in terms of good weather moments. And I also knew that for climbing in winter and climbing solo, there's a lot of weight and it's really hard to carry it all by yourself. So I wanted straight away to start carrying some of my gear up into the mountains. And so I had one day in Chalten 
getting organized, buying some food and whatnot. And then the next day, did my first trip hiking a load up into the mountains. And how, how was the approach? How'd that go? That was fine. You know, it's a little bit of like a climate shock going from August in North America to August in Patagonia. So, you know, at first it all feels very cold and you're kind of not used to walking in wintertime snowpack because you haven't done it in a Mm -hmm. while. But uh, it went well. That day I hauled basically all my technical climbing gear up to Piedra Negra. So let's see. I Well, it's like roughly halfway from the end of the road or from the road to the base of the Super Canaletta in terms of distance. Well, not in terms of distance, but in terms of effort and time. Then the first weather window you had, once you got to the base, you, you kind of got, got skunked, right? Did, didn't work out? Yeah. So, well, after that initial load carry, a handful of days later, there was another like brief moment of clearer weather. And so I went into the mountains again and hiked more gear up to Piedra Negra, grabbed what I had stashed in Piedra Negra and hiked it all the way to the base of the route and then came out to Chalten the same day, although by headlamp because I got a late start because the storm didn't end until late in the morning. And then a handful of days after that, yeah, I went into the mountain for my third time. And that time I thought I was actually going to make an attempt. The weather looked decent. And I, I'm trying to remember now if, yeah, I don't think I bivied at Piedra Negra. I think I got an early start and went all the way to the base of the route in one day. But it ended up being a long day. And I was thinking to rest one day at the base because I didn't get to the base of the route until like 8 p.m. or something like that after a long day of hiking and then make an attempt the day after. So, yeah, the next day I was sitting in my tent, resting, getting psyched. I made a track up to the Bergschrand as a little like active recovery, but I had a inreach with me and I was texting with Rolo and with my girlfriend Alyssa to get weather updates and Rolo convinced me not to make an attempt the following day saying that it was just going to be too windy and yeah so instead I just hiked out the next day and my recollection is that in the morning it looked pretty darn nice and I was like oh man maybe I should have tried climbing <laughs> but Rolo's for my whole trip whenever I asked him for his advice on the forecast his his assessments were pretty spot on and yeah, by mid-afternoon, it was pretty windy, and I don't think it would have worked out. Nice. So back to town, and that was, yeah, my third trip into the mountains. And then you went back a fourth time. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. The whole trip, I was never in Chalten for more than like three or four consecutive days ever, because it was just like, come out of the mountains, repack, rest, and then go back in. The fourth time, I was like, okay, now I'll make an attempt. This looks like a good window. The only thing is it was not a particularly large weather window. And again, I made the approach in one day. And as I recall, on that time, it was actually much better snow conditions. So I got there in good time, not too tired, got to bed early and woke up the next morning, you know, did the usual cramming down some calories and some water and then hiked up 
to the Bergschrund and started climbing. And I knew that the forecast was only good until, if I'm remembering correctly offhand, something like midnight or 1 a.m. But I thought that that might be enough time. Mm -hmm. And basically, I climbed the first 1,000 meters from the Bergschrund up to this feature called the Bloque Empotrado. And that went fine, but it took more time and energy than I would have expected just because there was so much hard, old gray ice. And then from there, I climbed, let's see, like one, two, three, four, five, something like the first seven pitches of the more technical fifth class section of the route. And the first pitch above the bloque is one of the more difficult ones, but it went all right, took some time. How hard are, are we talking? I think um, most people would probably call that pitch M5, something like that. Mm -hmm. And a couple pitches higher, I bent a pick. I saw a picture of that. It's it's pretty seriously bent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, because of the winter conditions on these ice steps that in summer are actually usually pretty cruiser because the ice is soft and fat. In winter, the ice was thinner and more importantly, it was really hard and really brittle. So often in places where in summer you would just kind of be like thunk, thunk, in winter you have to swing pretty hard. And for the same reason, I was using the pure ice picks, which are Petzl's thinnest pick. And they climb extremely well if you're swinging into hard ice, but because they're thinner, they're also more fragile. And yeah, I've never bent a pick that badly before. So I had to first do a couple more moves with this drastically bent pick, which obviously did not swing into the ice very well at all. <laughs> and then I got to a slightly um, less steep spot. And, you know, obviously I was immediately like, oh, can I even continue at all? I put in a screw and clipped to it so that I could relax a little bit. And then I spent a few minutes just whacking that tool with the hammer on my other tool. And I actually got it back decently straight. That was already kind of like a big blow of confidence to the ascent. But mm -hmm. I was like, well, I think it's more or less working again. So I decided to continue. And it obviously wasn't, that pick wasn't swinging as well, but it was still more or less working. Yeah, I climbed another handful of pitches above there on one of them using a lot of time because I didn't choose the best way. You know, even though I've climbed the route a couple times before, it's been spread out over a long period of time. So I didn't remember the details exactly. And um, yeah, I got to kind of like a pitch and a half above where the route kind of leaves the gut of the couloir. And mm -hmm. I might mess up these times offhand. I think I want to say it was 2.30 p.m. when I like stopped to assess my progress, something like that. In any case, regardless of exactly what time it was, I stopped and I was like, yeah, I have a lot of climbing to go. It's, you know, decently late in the afternoon. And I knew that the storm was supposed to come in at 1 a.m. And I was kind of just, you know, doing some quick calculations in my head. And I was like, yeah, this is not happening. It would be cutting it yeah. way too close. And in addition to that kind of like rational assessment, which I think was totally spot on, I just was like, this feels like 
way too intense. <laughs> hmm. Like, yeah, soloing Fitzroy is an intense endeavor no matter what. <laughs> and being there in winter, it makes it more intense. And also, I think I hadn't done any hard soloing in quite a while. So it's almost like my psychology was rusty for being in that super intense experience. Sure. Yeah, in any case, I decided that the the only reasonable choice was to bail. How how far were you from the summit if you had kept going, do you think? Distance, time? I had done, in terms of elevation, I had done the overwhelming mm-hmm. majority. But in terms of the hard climbing, I had done maybe 25 or 30% of the hard climbing. So there was still a good, good bit to go. Yeah, there was a lot to go. Um, you know, if at that same time of day, I had already done 60% of the hard climbing, then I probably would have kept going. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I was working it out. I was basically on track to get to the summit around 11pm or something. And considering that the storm was supposed to start at roughly 1am, that was definitely going to be cutting it way, way too close. For for people who might not know, so you were free soloing a lot of the early couloir, but then on some of the, or all of it, right, and then on some of the more technical, maybe uh, dicier, mixed sections, you were using a, a crude sort of self-belay, right? Yeah, so on both that attempt and when I went back on the successful ascent, <clears throat> um, all of the couloir I free soloed, and then on the um, kind of sustained fifth class portion of the route, I was free soloing something like uh, 90 or 95 percent. And then in the places that were a little bit trickier or a little bit less secure, doing some very crude and very basic self-belay techniques. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, I never did any proper self-belaying, you know, where you make an anchor, climb up a pitch, rappel back down, and then go back up. Um, Right only because it's extremely time-consuming. And if you're trying to climb a 1,600-meter route up and down in a day, it's never going to happen if you're doing that. Um, So the techniques that I was occasionally using, they're techniques that in Yosemite are known as like daisy soloing and back looping. And basically, they're both techniques that are not really very safe, to be honest. (laughs) Um, And I... I basically use those techniques on sections of terrain that I would almost be comfortable free soloing, but I'm like, ah, it's just a little bit too insecure for me to want to just go up this completely untethered. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's terrain that I still feel very, very confident I won't fall on. And if it were any more difficult, then I would insist on doing a real self-belay. It's basically... Yeah, for that terrain that's just a little bit harder than your comfortable free soloing. And gotcha. you wouldn't want to test following falling using either of these systems. But say you fall using a back loop and you take a horrendous factor two fall and your anchor doesn't rip, you might hurt yourself pretty badly. But even if you, say, break your leg and you have the like epic of a lifetime doing a thousand meters of rappelling by yourself with a broken leg, 
that is still better than just being dead, which if you <laughs> fell right. in that moment and you had been totally free soloing would be the other option. <laughs> right. Right. So you ended up bailing on this first attempt and you kind of thought that that was it for the trip, right? You probably weren't weren't going to give it another crack. Totally. I felt like, yeah, I felt psychologically that um, it was too much. And, um, you know, I have at various times in the past decided often while doing hard solos that I've been like, this is just too much. I I'll finish this climb, get off safely and then call it good and move on. (laughs) Um, and that's totally how I felt then. And that's how I felt for the entirety of the descent. And then, um, when I got back down to my tent, I had just a couple hours of um kind of recuperating before the storm hit and yeah it was extremely clear that bailing was the right choice because it was not just deteriorating weather it was a very violent storm it, that if mm-hmm. i were high on the mountain would be you know an epic struggle for survival if you would survive and instead it was an epic struggle just to get back to town um so that whole next day I was uh, hiking in very, very stormy weather, like winds that, you know, blow you to your knees on the glacier and uh, breaking my tent poles, et cetera. Um, And oh, yeah, because I was like uh, very confident that I would not try again, that I was over it and would maybe just become a sport climber for the rest of my life. um, (laughs) I uh, hiked out all my gear from the base as well. It's like the the trad climber who sells his rack saying he's done and then just buys another one to go back because you were, you were back in the mountains pretty soon, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it almost sounds like, uh, <laughs> well, it certainly sounds funny. I could almost even say embarrassing to talk about how rapidly I changed my <laughs> mind and my, you know, psychological, emotional state related to this objective. But Yeah, I got back to town still thinking like, you know, I'm over this. And I think less than 24 hours later, I was like, well, you know, maybe (laughs) I could try again. (laughs) And then another another 24 hours, I was, you know, later I was planning exactly how I should change my strategy, etc. And another 24 hours after that, I was mostly packed. (laughs) Nice. So so you hiked back in and what was what was different about your strategy for for this time um i'd say that it was in general pretty darn similar um the biggest Mm -hmm. difference in strategy is i decided to leave one of my ropes part way up Mm -hmm. um i don't know if you want me to go into the details to explain this but it, it basically um allowed me to do a large portion of the hardest climbing with just one rope and um save some weight. Yeah, which might not sound that significant, but when you're predominantly free soloing, having two 60-meter mm. ropes on you is a pretty big burden. Um Right. So I do think that that strategy change was helpful. Okay, you're back in at at the bottom of Fitzroy. Uh you start up, you free solo up the the snow and then the the hard gray ice again. You make it back, you you self-play on a couple of the dicey parts, and you're back at the the spot where you turned around. And were, were you there earlier in the day this time? 
Um, only a little bit, um, like 15 minutes or something like that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, actually a funny anecdote. I don't know if people would find this interesting, but <laughs> often when I'm climbing, and I think especially when solo climbing, I get a song mm-hmm. stuck in my head. Not yeah. that I'm like fixated on, but this it's kind of just like playing constantly in the background. And on that first attempt, um, for pretty much the whole way, I had this Frank Zappa song called Titties and Beer stuck in my head. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's not like a favorite song of mine or anything like that, but it was just in there playing over and over. It was the blackest night, there was no moon in sight. You know the stars ain't shining cause the sky's too tight. On the second attempt when I did it, I just remembered that that had happened on the first attempt, and remembering that caused it to get in my head again. <laughs> and uh, so when I was at the bloke, I you know stopped for five or ten minutes to eat some bars and drink some water and whatnot, and reorganize my gear a little bit, and I intentionally. Uh, played a song on my phone while I was resting there to like change what was stuck in my head. Nice, nice. So then what was the part of the climb that you hadn't done the first time? Like, did it go pretty smoothly? Um, I would say that it went smoothly, but it definitely still felt intense. And um, it's not like there was one part that was like, oh, this was the moment that was more intense than everything else. But there's just a lot of terrain to cover that requires constant focus, constant attention, because there are a few easier bits, but it's mostly all real fifth class climbing, you know, where a fall at any spot would mean falling to your death. and there there aren't any um, really hard pitches on the route, but there are like a number of sections that are tricky enough that you really have to be careful. And also, I guess because of that, my progress was never horribly so slow, but never that fast either. And um, I remember I finished the pitches up to the upper Southwest Ridge. And from there you have still a long ways, but it's kind of different terrain weaving over and around these gendarmes. And um, I started to realize at that point, you know, oh, it's like not tons more daylight. And um, so I also started like trying to rush more on that last section Mm -hmm. of the fifth class climbing, but you can't rush that much when you're also climbing these tricky pitches and trying to be really careful. Um, But I guess I just felt for that whole upper ridge that I was in this kind of really intense state of trying to be extremely careful, but also like wasting as little time as possible. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think typically in alpine climbing, unless you are like just walking down a glacier with a track on it or something, when you know that you're soon running out of daylight, it's always kind of a more anxious part of the day. Did you reach the summit in in daylight or was it dark when you got up there? It was dark. Um, Fortunately, I... What time did you get up there? Well, yeah, I got to the summit at 9 p.m., which was um, 
I don't know, like two and a half hours after dark or two and a quarter hours after dark, something like that. I don't remember exactly. But I just barely finished the last hard pitch in the light, which was great because I actually, nice. the way things were going a couple pitches earlier, I thought that that wasn't going to happen. Um, but I just barely finished the last hard pitch with daylight and then climbed the upper slopes in darkness. Um, what was it like on top? Uh, it was, it was pretty intense, you know, already those upper slopes, um, in summer are like kind of trivial compared to the route below. Um, mm -hmm. but they felt very different in winter. Um, partly because there was a lot of deep powder snow in some kind of wind sheltered spots, which just felt so weird. It felt more like a Himalayan mountain, you know, literally like thigh deep powder in places. Right. And then, yeah, on the summit, um, it was actually decently windy, which I hadn't really had any wind all day. I think the wind was coming from like the north, and so it hadn't been hitting me much on the climb. But on the summit, it was a bit windy, and um, I could see the lights of Chalten. Um, That's cool. Which it, it, yeah, it's it's totally cool, but it's also kind of surreal because yeah, to be able to optically see a place where everything is safe and comfortable but <laughs> it's 3000 vertical meters below you and it's a completely different world separated by you know a thousand meters of steep alpine rappelling and a lot of down climbing and a huge glacier and all this stuff it's kind of funny when you can see something yet it's like so incredibly separated from you wow um and so steep alpine rappelling in the dark and and down climbing that must have been still pretty pretty intense the whole descent as well right yeah so yeah i was i only stayed on the summit like two minutes because i just which is not that uncommon for hard alpine climbing experiences for me it's just like i'm like okay could i got here now i just want to get down safely mm -hmm. you know i'll be happy later and um yeah, I knew that I, it was going to be a big descent, all in the dark. So I was anxious about that because there's so many different ways that the descent can go wrong. Repelling in Patagonia is often very tricky. And um, the first um, <clears throat> like 200 vertical meters of repelling I was doing with just one rope because of the right. strategy I had adopted, which in hindsight, I think was totally the right strategy. But that added a level of anxiety because I knew I was going to be repelling a bunch of pretty steep terrain with just a single 60, which changes things. Um, and I guess slowly as I got further down the descent, I felt more and more relaxed because there's less separating you from, you know, an assured safe outcome the farther down you get. So by the time I was doing the kind of like last repels and then down climbing the lower 200 meters of snow at that point you know i felt very tired and very kind of psychologically worn out but not that anxious then got it um as you've said a couple times after these big really intense psychologically taxing solos you sometimes say like okay um that hard solo Alpine climbing is is a uh, is not not the the main thing for you anymore. And maybe it and maybe it hasn't always been the main thing, but it's been a big a big part of your career. 
how do you feel about that after this climb? I guess after this climb, I did not have that feeling much. In fact, I felt more like, ah, that was pretty cool. I wonder <laughs> what other things I might consider trying. Um, maybe that's partly because it turned out in a nice success and everything went smoothly in the end. But yeah, uh, that was my overwhelming sentiment coming down from my earlier attempt and not really my sentiment at all coming down from the successful ascent. Some other notable solos might be in the future. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, how do you approach a, cl a climb like this, trying to do it within your risk tolerance, but um, not cross it, I guess? Um, let's see. I mean, I think I would just say that I approach it the same as I would climbing with a partner, just trying to evaluate what I'm up against in terms of the difficulties of the ascent and the risks of the ascent and, um, and you know, how those difficulties compare to my level of preparedness in terms of, you know, technical skills and physical fitness and all this stuff. And obviously soloing is extremely different from climbing with a partner, but I guess the kind of like rough, you know, scheming of like, am I up for this? And how should I go about trying this? It's to me, um, not necessarily so different. You, you've compared in, in a past blog as well, uh, soloing big climbs like this to addiction to uh to alcoholism um obviously they're they're not exactly the same thing but i i do think there's something instructive in looking at, at any time of type of climbing and particularly risky climbing in in an addiction framework have your thoughts on that evolved at all do you think that's still there's something apt to that well i think the comparison makes some sense in that <clears throat> often when people have you know, an addiction, it's something that they recognize, at least at moments that they would like to stop, but they return to again and again. And I guess that hard soloing has been like that for me that at least at moments, and a number of moments, maybe many moments, I have said to myself, okay, enough of this, it's like, too intense, you know, I'm better mm -hmm. off just always climbing with partners, etc. Um, but have been, have returned to again and again as well. So I think there is definitely a parallel to addiction in that sense. Do you still have things on, on the bucket list down there? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because this winter trip to Patagonia was my first time down there in two and a half years. And that was the longest period of time that I had not been to Chalten since I was 19 years old in my first trip down there. Um, so it did feel quite odd to be gone for so long from a place that I've spent so much time, you know, during the last couple years, um, and for the couple years leading up to that, I had kind of been thinking, you know, I love Patagonia. I'll always love it, but I've spent so much time here. I've done so much climbing here, you know, I should branch out and explore other mountain ranges where things 
are less familiar and more exciting to me because of that. And I still think there's a lot of truth to those things I just said. But at the same time, you know, I go to other places and I kind of, again, just think, huh, man, like Patagonia really is awesome. (laughs) You know, the quality of the climbing is so good. The mountains are so outrageously spectacular. Um, There's none of the stupid bureaucracy that you have in the Himalaya. Mm-hmm. And, um, I also, um, am kind of not a huge fan of high altitude for the sake of high altitude. Um, sure. you know, I've always done well at high altitude. I don't have a problem with it physically, but of all the different things that can contribute to a climb's difficulty altitude, I've always felt to be the least interesting kind of, uh, vector of difficulty. You know, I got pretty re-psyched about Patagonia on this little winter trip just now. And, you know, I've been thinking more and more like, yeah, I have done a ton here, but there's still so much to do. And, um, Mm. I mean, you know, I think one thing that's interesting is how much there is to do in a given place or how much it's quote unquote climbed out in my mind is a very subjective, uh, evaluation. And, you know, I'm sure that there were people in the 1970s or probably earlier, maybe even the late 1950s, who were like, oh, Yosemite's climbed out. All the places have been climbed, you know? And no place is ever too climbed out for someone who has enough creativity to think of really cool new challenges. I guess on that note, uh, we we should wrap this up. So, Colin, thanks a lot for joining us on the Cutting Edge um, congrats on a phenomenal climb and uh, hope to have you on again soon. Thanks very much. Sorry I was so long-winded at times. <laughs> no, you're great. I think that's why people tune in to hear, hear the nitty-gritty details. Cool. Well, thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure. No one writes more analytical reports of his biggest climbs than Colin Haley does. And you can find his report from Shell 10 at his Skagit Alpinism blog. There are tons of photos as well. Thanks to Colin and Michael for this month's interview. Sierra McGivney helped produce this episode. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. If you're wondering what to get the climber who has everything this holiday season and you're willing to go big, check out the full lineup of world-class tents at hilleberg.com. We get additional support for The Cutting Edge from Gnarly Nutrition, Loa Boots, and Polar Tech. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.